Whether or not you believe in Jesus, most people accept that a man named Jesus of Nazareth lived and breathed in early first century Judea. The only written accounts of his life appear in the New Testament section of the Bible, and only two authors write anything down about his birth, the event that is still celebrated more than 2,000 years on and which we call Christmas. One is by a man named Matthew, who is one of Jesus' 12 original disciples, and the other is by Luke, who never met Jesus but who claims to have met people who did. On a busy roundabout near the bus station in present-day Nazareth, you can find the Church of the Annunciation. 2,000 years ago, Christians believe a divine messenger of God, an angel named Gabriel, appears here with important news for a young unmarried local woman, the consequences of which change the world forever. My name is Chas Bayfield and this is Holy Bible Nativity Edition, Year Zero. Regulars to this podcast know that Holy Bible is a secular walk through a sacred text, a kind of Bible minus the religion, or at least without any waggy fingers telling listeners what to believe. It's the raw story, with a few interjections where I point out which bits Christians get particularly excited about, which ones leave them scratching their chins, and which give atheists a healthy amount of ammunition to throw at them. The Christmas story is one of the few Bible stories that everyone seems to know, and throughout the centuries it has been embellished like no other, making it hard to pick out the myth from the actual story that appears in the Bible account. With that in mind, here's what we know about the moment BC switched to AD. At the time of the angel's visit, Nazareth is an unremarkable village in the district of Galilee, at the far eastern edge of the Roman Empire. It's here that an angel named Gabriel tells a young woman called Mary that she will give birth to a baby boy, and that the father will be none other than God himself. Gabriel tells Mary that her son will be the heir of Israel's great king David, and will rule over the Jews. Mary asks the obvious question. If she is a virgin, then how will she give birth to a child? The angel assures her that God has taken care of all this. This placing of God's son in the womb of a woman is known as the incarnation, and believers see the child as 100% God and 100% man. In other words, God simply adds humanness to his CV without actually abandoning being God. Many believe that the birth is the fulfilment of a message given by the Old Testament prophet Isaiah that a virgin will give birth to a son called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. At the time, Mary is committed to marry a carpenter named Joseph. In Bible times, marriages appear to be based on money and property rather than romance and are brokered by the two families. Given that Joseph makes no appearances in the accounts of Jesus as an adult, he may have died, suggesting he might be considerably older than Mary, who may be as young as 14. Roman Catholics believe that Jesus' mother is born completely free from the corrupting effects of original sin, even though she has a biological mother and father. This means that, unlike other people she shares the planet with, Mary lives a life that is pure and sin-free, so that her son can also be born free from sin. 
The Immaculate Conception, as this idea is known, is the reason that Catholics revere Mary as a woman who is more divine than human, and why many Catholics not only refer to her as the Queen of Heaven and Mother of God, but also pray to her. Naturally, Joseph finds the news that his wife-to-be is pregnant somewhat confronting, but being a decent, kind man, he opts to break off the engagement privately. As a law-abiding Jew, he might easily have outed his intended as an adulteress and had her stoned in the public square. It's only when an angel confirms in a dream that God is behind the pregnancy that Joseph has a change of heart. The angel tells Joseph that Mary will give birth to a son and that they should name him Jesus as he will rescue people from all their sins. The name Jesus means the Lord saves. Joseph and Mary don't sleep together until after Jesus is born, possibly so that no one could claim that the child was Joseph's. Mary hurries off to tell an older relative, Elizabeth, who is also pregnant. Elizabeth's son will be a man named John the Baptist, who appears later on in the New Testament story. Mary spends a significant amount of her pregnancy with Elizabeth, a whole three months in fact. When Mary reaches her house, Elizabeth tells her that she feels unworthy to be in the presence of the mother of the Lord and lets her know that her own baby jumped for joy in her womb when Mary first arrived. Both women realise that Mary's unborn son is truly special and Elizabeth tells Mary that she is the most fortunate of all women and that she and her son have been blessed by God. Unable to contain her joy, Mary bursts into song and thanks God for noticing someone as lowly as her. An unexpected Roman census plays havoc with Mary and Joseph's birth plans. At the time, Quirinius is governor of the Roman province of Syria and he has been asked to carry out a headcount as part of a wider census for the entire Roman world. The sense is that if Rome knows how many people live in its empire, it can better calculate its potential tax revenue. What bothers the men and women who study Roman history is that Caesar's survey comes at completely the wrong time for the nativity. In fact, by the time Quirinius is told to pull his census together, the shepherds and magi are long gone and Jesus is around 10 years old. Luke even contradicts his own timeline by placing the census during the reign of Herod the Great, a king who dies ten years before Quirinius is appointed to govern Syria. The truth is, no one wrote about Jesus' life while he was still alive, and the circumstances around where he was born, what day, and who was governing Syria when it happened, don't change the remarkable events which appear to have taken place during his three years of teaching and which Christians believe are not only credible today but which point to Jesus being the Messiah, the long-awaited leader who will reunite Israel. For Christians then, Quirinius is an official who throws a spanner in the works but not one that sinks the ship. Possibly to cut down on paperwork, everyone must head for their hometown for census day. That means it really is just a simple head count. It also seems that only the men are counted, as Mary, who was born in Nazareth, accompanies Joseph to his birth town of Bethlehem. There is no mention of whether the couple walks or rides there. The donkey appears to be a whimsical addition to the nativity story that fails to feature in the Bible. When they arrive in Bethlehem, Mary is heavily pregnant, but there is nowhere for them to stay. The biblical innkeeper appears to be yet another nativity myth. 
His blunt announcement that there are no vacancies is not mentioned in any of the gospel accounts, and the sense is that most travellers lodge with friends or in private houses, a bit like today's Airbnbs. The lack of any travel plans does suggest poor planning on behalf of Mary and Joseph, for there to be no guest rooms anywhere suggests that other people got to the rooms before they did. There's also no mention of a stable in the biblical account, so the couple probably bed down on the ground floor of a house where the animals are kept overnight. Not only are the donkey, the innkeeper and the stable a cute piece of Victorian fancy, the notion that all this takes place in the deep midwinter is also phony. For there to be shepherds in the field suggests that this is either spring or autumn, so possibly March or October. The early Christians opted for a midwinter date to make it more palatable for pagans who'd been forced to cancel their own Yuletide celebrations. This is why so many of the Christmas trappings, the evergreens, Yule logs and candles, are pagan in origin. The main event of the Nativity is easy to miss, as it is dealt with in such cursory fashion by the Bible's writers, who appear to find the build-up and aftermath to Jesus' birth much more interesting. Mary wraps her newborn in cloths and lays him in a makeshift bed made from an animal feeding trough referred to in the Bible as a manger. Older Bibles refer to these cloths as swaddling bands, strips of cloth wrapped around an infant to restrict movement. The Christmas carol Away in a Manger may assert that the little Lord Jesus no crying he makes, but there is no evidence that Jesus is any different to any other needy baby and the song is more a reflection of the Victorians' association of quietness in children with virtue. The newborn baby Jesus spends his first hours on earth among donkeys, oxen and other livestock. His accommodation may not be the most luxurious, but this doesn't stop God putting on a show to announce his birth. Throughout the Old Testament, God follows a pattern of choosing the most unexpected people to carry out his purpose. Already in the New Testament, he singled out a childless old couple who he tells will have a son. Elizabeth and her husband Zechariah are in their old age by the time their first child, John the Baptist, is born. Mary is a young girl from Nazareth, not a high-born princess, and so it seems only natural then that God doesn't announce the news of Jesus' birth in the temple or to a king or governor. He comes to a field in the hill country outside Bethlehem. The first people to witness the epoch-changing events unfolding are an ordinary bunch of herdsmen tending their sheep on the outskirts of the town. These men are not the obvious candidates, especially as it is census time and Bethlehem is full of every kind of priest and dignitary you could possibly wish to meet. According to the Bible, a large gathering of angels, which it refers to as the heavenly host, appears to the shepherds on the night that Jesus is born. These men are such underdogs that they live on the fringes of society and keep antisocial hours while surrounding themselves with livestock. The angels send a lone outrider to inform the shepherds of the events that are taking place in the nearby town. Sensing that the men are utterly spooked by seeing one of God's messengers in the flesh, the angel tells them not to be afraid and that he brings news that will make all people extremely happy. Glad tidings of great joy. The angel then explains that the Messiah has just been born in Bethlehem and that if the men want to see the baby for themselves, they need to make their way to the town where they will find him wrapped in cloths and lying in a feeding trough. The workaday setting for the arrival of someone this incredible no doubt makes the news much more digestible for the shepherds. 
No sooner has the angel delivered his message than he is joined by a huge number of angels who all begin praising God enthusiastically. The angels tell the shepherds that God is glorious and his power needs to be recognised. Just to be certain of which God they are representing, this is God in the highest, the God of the Jews who lives in heaven. The angels then declare peace to all people who God is pleased with. This peace is less about political land grabs, it's more to do with the peace of mind which Christians believe is only available through deep personal knowledge of Jesus, and the cosmic peace that will come about when Jesus dies in order to rescue everyone else. It's a lot of information in just a few words, and it's delivered with the pizzazz of a Las Vegas stage show, but it does the job, and the stunned shepherds stop what they are doing and hurry into Bethlehem. Another disappointment for Nativity fans, despite popular tradition, the angels do not say goodwill to all men, nor is there any record of them singing, both of which now seem a core part of the story. With no star and only local knowledge to guide them, the shepherds quickly find Mary and Joseph, and, seemingly unfazed at the sight of a baby in a manger, pass on everything that the angels have told them. No record is made of the men handing lambs to the newborn infant. This appears to have been the invention of artists who needed the shepherds to be doing something more than looking adoringly at a baby. The new parents are no less surprised than the shepherds that news of their son's birth has got out, particularly given their somewhat last-minute travel plans. After their visit, the shepherds tell everyone they meet about the amazing things which they have seen, effectively becoming Christianity's first evangelists, before disappearing from the story. However, these humble men's early enthusiasm and support lives on in countless Christmas carols, nativity plays and Renaissance paintings, despite no one knowing any of their names. In most school nativity plays, the shepherds are followed into the stable by three wise men, or kings from the east. However, this is just a convenient condensing of time, a kind of nativity highlight reel. The wise men appear not to show up until Jesus is perhaps a young toddler. As practising Jews, Mary and Joseph have their son circumcised at eight days old, and present the infant at the Jerusalem temple when he is 40 days old. In Jesus' time, the first son in a Jewish family is presented in the temple at 40 days, as this is when his mother is no longer considered to be ritually unclean. The reason for doing this is to acknowledge that the baby is God's, and to thank God for sparing his people on the night before they fled Egypt en masse back in the time of Moses. It is here at the temple that Christianity's first family meet an old and devout Jewish man who appears to be expecting them. Simeon has been waiting patiently for the Messiah, the Jew who will liberate the Jewish people. Now more than ever, the Jews are desperate for a deliverer to rescue them from the Gentile Romans who have taken control of their country, and Simeon waits daily in the Jerusalem temple so that he'll be first in line when this happens. It comes as no surprise then that he gets very excited when he hears the Holy Spirit tell him that the Messiah is about to show up in person. Traditionally, a baby's parents offer something to God, usually a lamb, as a thank you for letting them, quote, borrow the child, and it is when Mary and Joseph arrive at the temple to make their sacrifice that Simeon sees their son. A devout old woman, Anna, also joins in and thanks God for the baby, reminding the new parents that their son is a very special boy. After presenting Jesus at the temple, Mary and Joseph return to Bethlehem, where they possibly find themselves some more appropriate accommodation. 
Some two years later, a second group of guests arrived to greet their child. The Magi, also known as the Wise Men, are travellers from the east who see a star in the sky and take it to mean that a king will be born directly beneath it. Little is known of the Magi or why it is thought that they might have been kings. Some say that they are astrologers, but legend suggests that they serve in the royal courts of Persia, India and Arabia. Others claim that the kings are Jews who have remained in Babylon after their people were exiled here in the 6th century BC and who know that a Messiah has been promised to Israel. Whoever these travellers might be, the Bible doesn't tell its readers how many of them there are and the suggestion that they arrive on camels is pure guesswork. The only sign that the men have that something is afoot in Bethlehem is a brand new and very bright astral body that hovers in the skies above the town. Debate rages about the exact nature of the Star of Bethlehem. Some argue that the star might have been a planetary alignment of Jupiter, Saturn and Mars in 6 BC, while others suggest that God, being God, can invent any star he wants to. Experts agree that the star might actually be a comet, a slow-moving ball of rock dust, ice and gas that appears to hang in the sky, its vapour trail acting as a gigantic arrow pointing to the small Judean town as if to say, something big is happening here. Just such a comet is spotted by Chinese astronomers in 5 BC, adding credibility to it being a star from the east. Given that many think that the Magi come from Babylon and that China is to the east of Babylon, the star certainly seems to have an eastern origin. The star goes ahead of the Magi, suggesting again that its structure is very similar to that of a comet, which travels slowly through the night skies. Like a solar-powered GPS, the star guides the Magi directly to their Bethlehem stable destination, before moving off into the heavens and out of the narrative of the Bible. Once en route, however, the exotic travellers break their journey at the palace of King Herod the Great in Jerusalem and spill the beans about their mission to find and honour the King of the Jews. The New Testament's original gangster is a puppet king placed in charge of Judea by Rome. Herod is seen as someone who can tow the official party line and keep his own people in check. He does this by killing most of the Jewish ruling council, as well as his own wife and her brother. A megalomaniac in every sense of the word, Herod also commissions some gargantuan building projects, including a Jewish temple whose last remaining stones can still be seen at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. Despite his ambiguous racial origin and no proof that he is actually Jewish, Herod likes to think of himself as King of the Jews and appears genuinely unnerved that an actual king might have been born, a king who might usurp him. Panicked, Herod pulls together some holy men who have actually read the scriptures and asks them where the Messiah is supposed to be born. The answer, of course, is Bethlehem, as promised by the Old Testament prophet Micah, and Herod is now more worried than ever that for him the party might be about to end. He gives the Magi firm instructions to report back to him and sends them on their way. The posse of Gentile pagans continues to follow the star until the men reach Bethlehem, where they present the baby Jesus with gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. These might not be the kind of toys that a parent might choose for their young child, but the high-status nature of the gifts themselves suggest that the recipient is true royalty. 
Gold may be the universal currency of kings, but frankincense and myrrh are aromatic tree resins found only in the southern Arabian Peninsula and in the northern part of East Africa. This has led Bible boffins to think that these are not just appropriate gifts for a king, but that they have a special symbolism too. As the ultimate precious metal, gold represents kingship, and Jesus is described by the Magi as king of the Jews. Frankincense is a specially consecrated perfume, one of the few that is allowed to be burned in the Jerusalem temple, and so it may be seen as a nod to Jesus' eventual role as the Jews' ultimate high priest. Myrrh is used during the process of embalming, and this gift can therefore be seen as a flash forward to Jesus' death. History doesn't relate the reaction of Mary and Joseph to such extraordinarily opulent gifts, or whether the baby Jesus enjoyed playing with them. In the Bible account, the Magi are warned in a dream about the clear and present danger that a return to Herod might bring to the child, and return home to their books and star charts via an alternative route. Another aside, the names Caspar, Balthasar and Melchior, often attributed to the men, first appear in a Greek manuscript translated into Latin in around AD 500, and this perhaps led to the idea that there were indeed three foreign visitors. Once Jesus has been born in a Bethlehem stable, there isn't much of a plan. Gabriel left no instructions on where he should grow up. Having only visited Bethlehem for a census, Joseph no doubt expects to bring his family home shortly afterwards, but the birth of his son requires a change of schedule. Matthew describes how an angel appears to Joseph in a dream, warning him that Herod's soldiers are bearing down on them and that they need to escape to neighbouring Egypt fast. With the return to the home comforts of Nazareth now out of the question, Joseph wastes no time in packing up his family in the middle of the night and disappearing south where the angel warns him to lie low and await further instructions. Meanwhile, Herod sets in place a horrific slaughter of baby boys living in or near Bethlehem. The Magi have long since left his palace and have failed to return, and for the king, no news is bad news. Somewhere out there is a potential new king of the Jews, and he needs to act. To cover all his bases, Herod sends out the horrific order that all baby boys under the age of two who are found in the Bethlehem region must be killed. Back in Bethlehem, however, the stable has been vacated. Warned of Herod's imminent attack, Mary, Joseph and Jesus have escaped. Though a horrific cull, New Testament Bethlehem is a town of around 1,000 people, so the number of boys killed in the slaughter might have been as low as 20. Still, the massacre of the innocents remains an unimaginably appalling incident, and if proof is needed of the evil or insanity of Herod the Great, this is it. The Nativity is an extraordinary entry to the world for the man who the Old Testament promises will rescue Israel and who arguably changes the way the world thinks and behaves more than any human before or after him. Few realise it at the time, but the effect that the birth will have is seismic as first the locals in Galilee, Samaria and Judea witness his power. Then his message passes into Asia Minor and Europe after he miraculously resuscitates, having been brutally executed. And from here, it passes across continents and down centuries until only the most remote and undiscovered peoples have yet to hear about his birth.
Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chas Bayfield. Please send any comments or feedback to contact at holybible.com or search Holy Bible on Facebook or Twitter. And if you have a spare minute, please review this podcast on whatever channel you use to listen. We'll be back next time with our regular show. Thank you.